Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiedman. And today we are going to talk about the month of Adar. Actually, did I say the month? There are two months of Adar. What on earth is going on? Well, the truth is that once every two or three years, the, num- the month of Adar doubles in size. Why? This is due to the unique structure of the Jewish calendar. Since the Jewish year is comprised of 12 lunar months, well, you know that the lunar calendar is 354 days. So that is 11-day difference than the solar calendar, which is 365 days. So to bring the two calendars in sync with their seasons, because the Torah tells us that the festival of Pesach, what does it say? It has to be in Aviv, in the spring season. Well, because of that, unlike the Islamic calendar, which is a strictly solely lunar calendar, that means it's only 354 days, which we've discussed here in previous presentations and classes in the past, so I won't delve into that too much today. In order for Pesach to always be in the spring season in the Holy Land in Israel, every few years we add a 13th month, making it a leap year, and this happens few times, I think it's seven times or so in a 19-year cycle. And this way, we have two months of Adar, which means 60 days of this month. Now, of all months, Adar is the only one that doubles to 60 days. All other months could be 29 or 30 days on a Jewish calendar. Only the month of Adar can become a 60-day affair. And of course, the question we ask is, why? Why the month of Adar? On a simple level, it's because they often waited until Adar, I'm talking about in the times of the temple, when the sanctification of the moon was the way to determine the months. And so the witnesses would wait and see what, how many days would the month be? Would Pesach indeed fall in the spring season or would it still be winter and hence require adding that extra month? So practically speaking, from a very pragmatic perspective, you waited until the end of one Adar to see if you needed to add another Adar or to begin with the first month on the Hebrew calendar, which is the month of Nisan. I know it's a little bit confusing. Yes, Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of our year, is the month of Tishrei, but Tishrei is the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. In fact, in our high holiday prayers, we in fact highlight the verses of the Torah that say that the seventh month is the month where our Jewish year begins. So yes, there's a lot to confuse us in the Jewish system. That's why you come here to Soul to Soul, to learn, to understand, to explore, and learn about our very rich heritage. So on a very simple level, we understand why Adar is the month that is doubled. But of course, everything in Torah is precise, is meticulous, is specific. So the choice of Adar was not just random, just because it happens to be the last month of the year, but rather it is connected to the theme of the month itself. And my friends, I want to share with you that exactly 30 years ago during this week, 
1992 were Tough Shinum Bays, the weeks of Adar 15752. The Lubavitcher Rebbe presented a profound and moving spiritual explanation. And my friends, I remember those days very distinctly because on the 27th of Adarishan, 1992, the Rebbe suffered a debilitating stroke that robbed him of his ability to speak after that. And so these are from the last talks that the Rebbe ever gave. And I think that their message, the potency of it, is more relevant today than ever before. And I think if you could just open your hearts, your souls, and listen to some of the ideas that I'll paraphrase, some of the insights that the Rebbe taught. And he took an example from the laws of Kashrut. Now, of course, anyone who studied for their smicha, for rabbinic ordination, learned the laws of taruvas, if there's mixtures of kosher and non-kosher, or the laws of basar bechalav, of, mix, of milk and meat mixed with each other. The Torah portion, in fact, we just read last week, says, We have a prohibition of mixing milk and meat. Do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. And it's written three times in the Torah. And our sages deduced from this three particular lessons not to cook milk and meat together, not to derive any benefit from milk and meat that was cooked together, not to eat milk and meat that was cooked together. But the Mishnah tells us that not only is non-kosher food forbidden to eat, but any taste of that food is not allowed. That is known as the concept called Ta'am Ke'ikar. I know it's been almost 20 years since I studied for my rabbinic ordination here in Pretoria. And I remember Rabbi Levi Weinberg, our Rosh Yeshiva, teaching us these ideas in a very lucid and clear way. And just to try to simplify what takes a year of study, the idea is Ta'am Ke'ikar means that the taste is like the prohibited food itself. So for example, if a piece of pork falls into food, we're saying that the taste it emits is like the pork itself, even if you've taken the pork out, which means, which is part of the reason why we don't use non-kosher crockery and cutlery and needs to go through a koshering process before we can make any utilitary, any purpose, any usage out of it. It is like the prohibited food itself. And therefore, if non-kosher food falls into a pot of kosher food, or milchigs and fleshigs get mixed together, which is prohibited, that milk and meat now have become a new taste and flavor, which is prescribed by the Torah. And so it's, there's a flavor there, like a cheeseburger, which is completely prohibited. We apply that rule of tam ki'ikar, and once kosher food that got that taste and that, that flavor, even if you've separated it, it's now non-kosher, even though the non-kosher food was removed. But if, the, if there was no non-kosher taste that remains, then actually that food, the product becomes permissible because there is no non-kosher flavor. Now, how do you determine if there is or isn't flavor that was emitted into that product? Well, here is a concept called bottle or bittle. How do you know if a food possesses non-kosher taste if you can't actually taste it yourself to know? Well, this is what our sages teach us, the law of nullification. If a food is nullified by 60 times the 
Meaning, if there's, if let's say meat fell into a milk pot, or probably more practical the other way, you spilled some of your coffee into a chicken soup, and there's 60 times of the chicken soup than there is of the coffee, that is called batal bashishim. It is nullified 60 times, and we believe that because it's 60 times of more of the chicken soup than the coffee, or if it was pork into a kosher food item, and we know it's 60 times more, then we could say that it didn't in any way transfer taste. Basically, the halacha is that you could assume that if there's 60 times more kosher than non-kosher food, then the taste of the non-kosher food is no longer detectable and therefore becomes permissible to eat. And where this number 60 is, our sages tell us 60 times the volume, not the weight, right? It means that the volume of kosher has to be 60 times greater than the volume of the non-kosher. But if the amount of kosher is less than 60, then the non kosher food, the mixture is not kosher, and even the non-kosher food, even if it was removed completely, we still believe that there's some kind of taste that was mixed into there, and therefore, it is still prohibited. And the same, this applies to milk and meat. If milk or pizza falls into your meat dish, and the ratio of the milk to the meat is, say, 1 in 59, it's all non-kosher. But if it, the meat is 60 to one or more than that, then it all is kosher. Now, how did the sages come up with this number? Well, the, the, the Gemara discusses this and says it was a tradition, a Masorah they received all the way back, going back to Moshe coming from Mount Sinai. And it's indeed fascinating because today we know that once there's 60 times the amount, you will in most instances not taste the flavor that is mixed in. Of course, there are exceptions to this rule. Our sages tell us there are certain foods that are feel about elef la bottle, that even a thousand times they don't become nullified and certain things, if it's a davar chashuv, or it won't go into the, into, the, into the details, very technical of what becomes nullified and what doesn't. And uh, today I didn't intend to give you a class on rabbinic on kashrut, but rather to share with you a different idea based on the Rebbe's teaching. But I felt it's necessary to first introduce it with a synopsis of the laws of kosher. The Gemara tells us this is based on the this, this concept of shishim from actually there's a verse in the Torah that discusses the laws of the karban, the sacrifice that was offered, that was brought by a nazir. And that is the concept of zroa b'shela, the foreleg of the ram after it had been cooked together with the ram. The ram was eaten by the nazir, the nazirite, even though it was cooked together with the zroa, which only the kohanim could eat. Now, how could a non-kohen eat something cooked with the zroa that was only fit for kohanim? For the non-kohen, this is a forbidden food. The answer is that the ram was 60 times the volume of the zero'a. And therefore, if it was 60 times the foreleg, we derive from this a general rule of batal b'shishim. If there's 60 times more kosher than non-kosher, the food may be eaten after any non 
any noticeable, any recognizable non-kosher food had been removed. Now these laws of Bittel, like I said, are very nuanced and complex, and it's a major part of Jewish law, but there's something and, you know, something comforting about this. It's quite evident that the Torah recognizes that people make mistakes, right? Besides for whatever kitchen mix-ups, there's discussion, halachas, that deal with mistakes that people make, not only in the kitchen, in all areas of life. Whatever mistake I made, uh, a person can make a mistake while praying, and a person, a sofa, a scribe can make a mistake while writing a Torah or mezuzah or tefillin. Or it could be a, a rabbis make mistakes. We're also homo sapiens. We're human beings. And every human being makes mistakes. Mistakes are actually part of the divine plan. We have to be able to forgive ourselves. We have to be able to forgive others for making mistakes. Last week's Torah portion, Kisisa was exactly about one of the gravest mistakes. A betrayal of God and fidelity worshiping a golden calf. Our goal is not perfection, but accountability. And therefore, if I make a mistake, I have to know that failure in life is not getting knocked down. Failure is only if I stay down. So how does this all exactly work? I'm eating chalant and I know there's milk in this chalant, even if I can't see it or taste it. And the answer is that if you have 60 times the milk with all the other ingredients, all your meat and vegetables and flavoring and the impure substance, the milk that was added into the meat becomes neutralized and it becomes part and parcel of the kosher food. Not only isn't it considered, is it considered that it became dissolved or non-existent, but actually the very impure substance, the milk that was mixed in there, which we know it's in there, now is considered to be transformed into kosher food, and now becomes part of the kosher dish. It's not just that my coffee is not felt in the chalant. It's that my coffee had become chalant itself. My chalant, maybe I should use a better example than chalant, but whatever the case, it's become a bit larger because of the coffee, and that's the power of 60, my friends. It does not only nullify the flavor, it transforms the flavor. It is not a transformed entity from non-kosher. It has become kosher. And with that, my friends, we could begin to understand why the month of Adar was given this unique opportunity to be the month that is doubled, that we get 60 days of Adar. So come right back after these messages. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman. Today we're talking about why is it that the month of Adar is chosen as the month that's doubled in a leap year in order to ensure that Pesach falls out in the right time in the spring season. Now, my wife and I are the organizers of the Pesach Retreat South Africa. And many of our international guests are Looking forward to coming here. They know that the weather here is fabulous, regardless which season. Now it's a little bit topsy-turvy because here it's our autumn season, but in a sense, the weather even gets better here. But the Torah tells us that Pesach has to be celebrated in the spring season in Israel. Well, in order to ensure that Pesach is in the spring season, 
some years, unlike Ramadan that moves over 11 days each year on the Gregorian calendar, of course not on the Islamic, the Jewish calendar, unlike the Gregorian, which is a completely solar calendar, and unlike the Islamic calendar, which is a completely lunar calendar, ours is a synthesis of both. But why the month of Adar was selected of all the months to be doubled? And that, my friends, we were talking about the laws of kosher, and I shared with you the idea called Bitul Bashishim, how food can be completely transformed, non-kosher food into becoming kosher for the 60 times the amount of kosher to the non-kosher element. Not that you could do this to begin with, but if it so happened that, like we said, coffee got mixed into your, a dairy coffee, not with almond milk, got mixed into your meat dish. Well, if there's 60 times the meat and the milk, then it becomes completely transformed. This idea will help us understand why the month of Adar was given 60 days. What is the essence of this month, the month that we're celebrating currently, the month of Adar, says the Gemara, Mishanichnas Adar Marbim Besimcha. When the month of Adar comes, we increase in joy. And the Megillah tells us that this month, which we're destined to be annihilated, as the festival of Purim itself proclaims that Haman tried to cast lots to annihilate, to destroy, to eradicate the Jewish people. So this month, which was transformed, Miyaga in the Simcha, from sorrow to joy. That's why when the month of Adar comes, we increase in our joy. Adar is not just an ordinary month. More than the joy derived from any special event or from what occurred so many years ago in the Purim story, more than the delight in a pleasing break in, from the monotonous, ordinary, as they say, normal is boring. It is the joy of transformation, my friends. It is the joy of the bitter turned sweet, of the adverse converted into a positive force of darkness becoming light. The transformative nature of Adar joy is also reflected in the way the Talmud describes and proclaims it as the most joyous of the months. What the Gemara is telling us that this is not mentioned about any other month. And the Talmud elaborates on the miraculous events of Purim and sets down various laws and customs that we have to observe to make this a more merry and jubilant and celebratory festival. It is the most joyous of festivals. You know that song we used to sing as kids? Why don't we get poor more often? We should have it frequently. And the Gemara tells us, and in fact, this is, it appears in the tractate of Tainus of fasts, in the midst of the discussion of the most tragic dates in the Jewish calendar, on Tisha B'Av, we fast, we mourn the destruction of the Holy Temple. And if you look there, the Gemara, the sages weren't really talking about the joy of Purim, where they tell us, They're talking there about the misery of a different date, Tisha B'av, the darkest day in the Jewish year, the day that marks the destruction of our temples in Jerusalem. And after a whole long discussion that details all the woes, all the horror, all the terrible events that occurred on this day, the 9th of Av, Tisha B'av, the sages say that when Av enters, Nema'atim B'Simcha, 
when the month of Av comes, we decrease in our joy. And right after that, the Gemara says, Rav Yehuda, the son of Rav Shmuel, Bar Shilat, he said in the name of Rav, just as Kishem shed, just as when the month of, of Av enters, Mematim Basimcha, we decrease in joy, Mishinichnas Adar Marbin Basimcha, when the month of Adar comes, we increase in joy. That seems strange. It sounds like it's almost the same thing. Just as we increase sadness in Av, we increase joy in Adar. But they're opposite experiences, aren't they? So my friends, this is what the Rebbe explained this Shabbos, 30 years ago, just a few days before suffering a debilitating stroke. And in fact, it was the same sequence as this year. My mother, in fact, merited to receive a blessing and a dollar from the Rebbe on that very last Sunday when he stood for hours giving blessings. And this week, somehow, lots of pictures were discovered and uh, friends of mine were sending me pictures of me passing by the Rebbe. One of those dates when the Rebbe gave out dollars and blessings to each child who passed by. And it's just so special how the Rebbe gave that attention. In that moment you were passing by him, how he looked you straight in the eye. And I think it's a powerful lesson, a message to each of us to do exactly, to emulate the Rebbe's ways. When you're with another person, nothing else in the world exists to be there with them completely. And the Rebbe explained that Adar is the month of joyous transformation. The month with that nullifying power of 60 of Bittl Bashishim. The power to transform an undesirable, even an destructive force into a nourishing joy and delight. Adar takes the experience of Av and turns it into a force for good. Adar has the ability to take those aspects of my life that are disturbing and are challenging and you know what I could do? Take the struggles and challenges and transform them into a catalyst for deeper self-awareness, for personal growth and development, to take the struggles and turn them into joy. The sadness can be metamorphosized. This is of all months. Which month? The month of Adar. It's the only one to double into 60. For Adar is the month of joyous transformation, the month with the nullifying power of 60, the power to transform the undesirable into a nourishing joy and delight. It is the unique power, the Rebbe said, over this next 60 days, these 60 days in the month of Adar, which three weeks have already passed, so you got five weeks left of this. These 60 days are charged with such a powerful, potent, and positive energy that anything that falls into them can be redefined, can become a springboard for joy, for growth and delight, creates the bitl b'shishin, the transformation of all things in our life which we find stressful and anxious, that unfortunately part of life drags us down. We see what's going on in the world, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the economy and the COVID-19 and all the problems that everyone knows about. And we can nullify all of that. What do we do? We transform all the negativity, all the things in our life that aren't good. And we wish we could get rid of those toxicities. But now we have the opportunity to turn them into a delicious kosher meal, so to say. One that tastes better than the ordinary meal because it transforms the bitter into sweet. We take, it takes away from the domain of the impure. 
transforms it into the domain of the pure as we learn the laws of kosher. And so we could do the same with the negativity of our lives and turn that to happiness and joy these days. Let me share with you a story. And it's a wonderful story. It was 1940, there was a young couple who were going on their honeymoon, newly, freshly married, and they decided to be adventurous and youthful. They rented a wooden cabin somewhere for three nights. They were hoping to kindle their romance, their affection for one another. They just got married after all. And you know what happens in some relationships after the honeymoon comes the divorce. That's why my personal blessing to all couples is I wish them an eternal and everlasting honeymoon. Let life always be a honeymoon. My wife and I are still on honeymoon. We never had our honeymoon trip, but please God, we're always on honeymoon. And so this couple, they didn't realize that their honeymoon wouldn't just be themselves, that they would be privy to a special visitor who wanted to join along. And as they tried to get some rest and enjoy their blissful romance, there was a woodpecker outside their cabin that kept the couple awake throughout the night. And even if there was rain, they learned because, you know, the the leaks coming through and they're soaking blankets and pillows. And there was this pesky bird out there that was boring holes in the cabin's roof. The woodpecker just kept at it. The husband wanted to shoot that thing, but his wife wouldn't allow him to do so. She said, no, this is part of our experience. The next night, the woodpecker returned and kept them awake again all night. Of course, I tell all insomniacs, tune into my shear, I'll put you straight to sleep. But there it was again, third night, they didn't participate in the shear and the woodpecker kept them awake. For all practical purposes and from all practical perspectives, this had been a grand failure, a miserable honeymoon. What was supposed to be the fun of their life turned out to be a dismal, experience. Couldn't get any worse than that. Yet on the way back home from their honeymoon, they started talking and discussing this. And they said, you know, we had an awesomely successful honeymoon. She didn't let him shoot the woodpecker. She said, let's just figure out now how we're going to, what we're going to, how we're going to unpack this woodpecker experience. And so the wife suggested to her husband, who happened to be an animator, to make a cartoon about that bird. What a unique experience. And so, my friends, it was on that day that Woody Woodpecker was born. The famous cartoon was created in 1940 during the honeymoon of this couple, Walter and Gracie Lentz, and it was a result of a woodpecker woodpecker that kept them up all night, that almost destroyed their honeymoon. And you know that 50 years later, when the couple was asked what was the best night of their entire life, you know what they responded? It was the night in the cabin of their honeymoon that seemed destroyed with that woodpecker boring a hole, making noise, annoying them. That night, they said, made them rich, famous, successful, and blissful. What was the objective truth? Was it a positive honeymoon or a negative one? Was it a good experience or a horrific one? Well, my friends, the answer is it depends on how you think about it. They could have decided it was a miserable honeymoon experience, and so it would have been. But they decided otherwise. They decided it was the best thing in their life, 
And you know what? So it was, because they understood the secret of this concept called Bitul Bashishim. That's what they understood. And that's the lesson and message I want each of us to try to comprehend. I want to share with you another story that just happened a few days ago. There was a lady celebrating her 110th birthday. Now, I take a lot of interest in people celebrating their, their uh, super centennials, as they call it. Because after all, running the Chabad Seniors programs involved with many of our retirement facilities here, I am very in tune with this. And it was a fascinating story out of New York. And nothing could have stopped this 110-year-old survivor that her friends and family came to celebrate with her. And they brought her the right gift. They brought her red wool and brand new knitting needles. And people were talking about it. You could see there's an article published by the JTA about this, about this lady in New York who all the people that came to her birthday party celebrating 110 years, what did they do? They brought with their, they brought for her material. They brought red wool and knitting needles because this lady, Rose Giron, that's what she wanted. When she turned 105, she turned to one of her friends and said, I need to retire. And at 110, now, even after COVID-19 and, you know, the scares that really could have come with it for her, her passion for knitting has made her well-known throughout the New York knitting community for the past few decades. But it also, I think, displayed, it also played a, a critical role in her family's survival earlier in her life. You see, Garon, she was born in 1912 in Poland. And after a brief move to Vienna, the family settled in Hamburg in Germany, where they ran a theatrical costume shop. She loved playing there, especially sliding down the banisters of the two-story building. In Hamburg, Garon learned to knit from one of her aunts, and she enjoyed it very much. So Rose married in 1938, her husband, Julius Mannheim. And later that year, they moved to another city in Germany. And that was just around the time when the Kristallnacht started, when the waves of anti-Semitism, of violence against Germany's Jews was happening. Her husband was arrested, he was transported to Buchenwald, to the concentration camp, and she, who was eight months pregnant at the time, she fled the city with her mother and her uncle to stay out of harm's way. She was alone and afraid, but she was determined to get out of Nazi Germany. She found a brief window of opportunity when in 1939, her cousin, Richard Tand, sent her a paper he said was a visa written in Chinese. Shanghai was one of the last open ports in the world. And so Rose presented the visas to the Nazi authorities. She was able to get her husband released miraculously from Buchenwald. And they made their way to safety. It wasn't easy. It took a long time. It took six weeks or so. It was, it was a very difficult 
story. She describes how all they had was 10 Reichmarks. It's about $40 in today's currency. No valuables, no jewelry, nothing. They left it all behind. And after a long voyage on a German liner, which by the way, that itself was completely discriminatory. Jews had to dine separately and were completely separated from the non-Jewish Germans on the ship. But that young family, Rose and her husband, arrived in Shanghai, China. Now, conditions in the Chinese city weren't easy either. Family traded whatever linens and trinkets that they brought with them. They needed to depend on aid from relief agencies. And eventually, her husband found work as a taxi driver. And she, she tried to make a living, as she said, on oodles of noodles. She was able to find some wool as she enjoyed. She was passionate about knitting. She knitted clothes for her baby girl. She had this um, entrepreneurial spirit and with a entrepreneurial Viennese Jewish man who saw her creations and thought that she could put her talent to use, well, she was able to earn some money for herself as well as for this business partner. And he invited her to sell her work, saying he would teach her about business. And together they brought her sample knits to an upscale store in China, in, somewhere in Shanghai where the boutique's owner suggested ways to make the pieces a little bit more fashionable, a little more elegant. And so she took the feedback and began to design and knit sweaters, jumpers we call them here, with the help of Chinese women. And all of, the, all of a sudden, she was earning somewhat of a living there. Well, in Germany, she lived a very sheltered life. But the other woman in Shanghai they made her stronger, and in 1941, Nazi allied Japan, which occupied parts of China, forced the Jewish refugees into a one square mile ghetto in the poorest part of Shanghai. Her family moved into this tiny room under a staircase that once served as a bathroom. It was a single bed for the three of them, she, her husband, and baby. The mattress was infested with roaches and bedbugs. Rats were running around while they tried to sleep. There was a bright spot of ghetto life because at one of the homes set up for the refugees, a rabbi would give inspirational messages, sermons to the community there. And she described how he was a fabulous speaker and I'd always stand in line to hear this rabbi. The final years of the war were filled with frequent bombings. It was really horrible, she described. She says she was panic stricken and she remembers playing with hot shrapnel in the streets once air raids ended. Now, fortunately, another voyage would provide her refuge. In 1947, the family was granted a visa for the United States of America, and Rose insisted on completing her knitting commissions before they set sail. She said, I had to finish what I promised. Again, there were limitations on what the family could take with them. Each person was only permitted to leave China with $10, but she smuggled another $80 cash inside buttons on her knitted sweaters well, this is what she related more recently on one of her birthdays, many years later. 
And they traveled by ship to San Francisco. Ultimately, they ended up in New York where she took a train and reunited with her mother, her brother, her grandmother, all who thankfully survived the war. Then they moved into a hotel that was part of the refugee settlement program. And she was determined to help provide for her family. She found work as a knitting instructor, but her husband did not muster the same motivation. And after years of urging him to find his footing in America, unfortunately, they divorced. In 1968, she married her current husband and they settled in Queens. That's a, one of the five boroughs in New York City. Rose Giron was thriving as a knitting teacher, was cultivating her own knitting community, and she soon opened a knitting shop in, in Regal Park, Queens, with another knitter. And after a short while, they expanded to a second location in Forest Hills. After a year or two, the partners, they split and each one kept the store. Giron's designs, her expertise and her design patterns became a became part of uh, the, she opened another shop and she describes how people would bring ads from magazines to show her designs that they liked. Some had very intricate patterns and she would sit and figure it out and she just loved this passion of hers. When she turned 68 in 1980, she sold her business, but she never stopped knitting. She began volunteering at a nonprofit knitting shop in New York. And one day, according to the Knitting Place podcast, this, she was struggling with a sweater that she was knitting for her husband. And Garone tried to figure out a certain pattern to distract herself. You know, maybe it would hurt less in the, you know, with the stitches. Well, she, the story goes, I'm not gonna go into all the details, you know, there's a lot here to, to tell you reading from the JTA article, but the point is that more recently, she was asked, how's business? And for her 100th birthday, she commissioned a surprise painting of this whole experience of Garone's, of her, of her knitting business. The point, you know, there's a lot here to read about the story and I'm gonna stop right here because we have to take a, a break in a moment. But I think we could all learn from this story. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. Sorry about the interruption earlier. I was reading your story from the JTA about this particular woman and she celebrated her 110th birthday just last week in New York. Regardless of the details of the story, and I, I can't read you all the details because time is short and I need to conclude. Of course, it's a story that takes that I take interest in because a woman, a super a super centenarian celebrating 110 years. But the point I was trying to illustrate was how a woman can find joy and meaning in her life even at this old age. What does this all mean for us in a practical way? How the month of Adar is doubled and we have to increase in our joy and happiness. The Talmud does not say what to do to increase in happiness. 
Apparently the whole point is for us to engage in joyful practices in a way that truly speaks to our individual selves. And therefore, the Talmud leaves it open-ended. It does not offer any specific instructions. It doesn't say how you should do it. But 30 years ago on Shabbos, Parshas Truma, just as I said, this is the time just before the Rebbe suffered a stroke. The Rebbe spoke about how the month of Adar, the double Adar, how people should increase in such times of things that will bring joy to themselves, to their spouses, to their children, to their community, to people around them. And the Rebbe suggested that especially fathers should try extra hard to bring more joy to their wives and their children. And the Rebbe explained that fathers could sometimes be a bit cerebral, a little bit detached, as, you know, sometimes fathers are a little bit more harsh and tough. So when a father shows their children more profound love and affection and really engages in activities, that will increase the joy. It, it shows the, it could transform the relationship of fathers and their children. And we know ourselves best. And so we are the ones who are best equipped to help ourselves feel joy during this double month of Adar, 60 days of joy. Whatever it might be, maybe it's a good time to think about what brings you joy in your life already and increase in those areas. What are concrete ways of bringing more joy into your life during this month of Adar and next week we get another month of Adar, five more weeks to celebrate these 60 days of joy. Perhaps ask yourself what holds you back from feeling the sense of joy that we need during this time. Who in your life needs to be reconnected with to experience more joy? Maybe what are some concrete things that you could do to help another person experience joy? From my personal experience, when you uplift someone else, you yourself are uplifted. Think of ways that you could help share joy with just another person or two or three at this time. And how could you spend your time more joyfully? more time in the areas that you value most? How will you ensure that the joy you experience this Adar, both 60 days of Adar, is not a passing phase, but becomes part of your life, day to day, your daily experience? My friends, these are two charged months, 60 days of joy. We are given divine power to take our challenges in life, to look at our struggles and obstacles and to cast them into a 60 day melting pot of Adar so we could dance from exile into redemption, both individually and collectively. May the news coming out of Eastern Europe today be only the news of redemption for the world and please God, each of us will experience personal and collective redemption for the entire world. May it, we merit the Messianic era speedily now. Wishing you all a festive, doubly joyous, magnificent Shabbos. Carpe diem.